0: When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness, leaving us feeling as if all of the beliefs that have been guiding us have disappeared and thus unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering and the Christian life. The first two volumes, When the Stars Disappear and Give Me Understanding That I May Live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Mark's conversation partner for this episode is Carl K.J. Johnson. K.J. is a retired Marine Corps officer who now directs the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago, where he oversees programs that foster discipleship of heart and mind, specifically the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program. After Mark suggests that the language of scripture should become so familiar to us that we naturally speak it back to God in prayer, he and KJ then go on to discuss how the book of Ecclesiastes can help us to understand and endure our suffering. Let's listen in.
1: Mark, uh, last time we saw how in Psalm 90, it can be taken as kind of a commentary on Genesis chapter three and verse 19. Well, this is where the, the psalmist laments on the brevity and frailty of human life that's been caused by sin. And yet asks God that in spite of that, to establish the work of their hands for them, quote, yes, establish the work of our hands.
2: That's right, KJ. Psalm 90 seems to me to be an awfully good example of how we're meant to navigate through life by hearing and heeding God's words in Scripture. In spite of the psalm's focus on the frailty, brevity, and potential frustration of all of our efforts in life, the psalmist displays, as Stanley Jockey puts it, an almost sweet resignation to what no one can change. God, because of who he is, because as Habakkuk declares, His eyes are too pure to look on evil, and so he cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Because of that, God must display his wrath against sin, which makes human life in the final analysis frail, brief, and often filled with frustration. Yet, as Psalm 90's first two verses proclaim, the Lord, in other words, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, has been his people's dwelling place in all generations. And the lesson for us is that no matter how brief our lives may be, no matter how much trouble they contain, if we, by faith, have been reconciled with God through Christ, he is, as Psalm 71 reminds us, our rock of refuge to whom we can always go. We know by faith, as the final verse of Psalm 30 puts it, that while our weeping may endure for the proverbial night, joy will come to us in the morning.
1: Yeah, I I love that line. I go to that often. Um, You know, Mark, I've heard you say several times that Scripture should become our primary language. In repeating several claims of Scripture in your response to my opening statement, is that what you're doing here? And if so, maybe you could explain that idea a little bit. It is,
2: KJ. That is what I was doing. I'm pulling together a number of biblical passages to exhibit how I think we are to make Scripture our primary language. Perhaps the best illustration of what it means to do that is found in Augustine's Confessions, where Augustine opens by adapting a passage from the Psalms. Augustine writes, Great are you, Lord, and highly to be praised. Great is your power, and your wisdom is beyond measure. That's really close to Psalm 145.3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And yet, as Thomas Williams points out in the introduction to his new translation of the Confessions, it isn't exactly a quotation, since Augustine, as Williams says, has turned the third-person statements of the psalmists, in other words, the great is the Lord, into second-person address, that is, great are you, so that, as William says, he isn't just describing God, as the psalmist does, but he's speaking to him. As William says, Augustine isn't just adorning his ordinary speech with the language of scripture in order to display his learning. The language of speech is his ordinary language. Augustine speaks the language of scripture as his own language. And as William says just a little further on, the fact that Augustine begins his work with the language of scripture is the signal that scriptural language is his language. The psalmist's voice, his voice, it incarnates the idea that God is not merely the object, but also the source of praise. God, Williams claims, gives us the need for praise. The way that Augustine puts that just a couple of sentences further on in the Confessions is that he says that human beings want to praise God and that God himself rouses us to take delight in praising him, for you, now I'm quoting him, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And as Williams continues, God then also gives us the will and even the words by which
1: that need to praise God is fulfilled. Oh, that, that's thats good. That's helpful, too. Um, So, Tell me, Mark, why is this important? Why why do we need to make scripture our primary language? Well,
2: we now know that the language we speak influences what we believe and desire and feel. For instance, researchers have found that the preferences of bilingual people, those preferences change depending on which language they're thinking in. For instance, when Middle Eastern people who speak both Arabic and Hebrew are given implicit association tests, they rate Jews more highly when the tests are given in Hebrew than when they're given in Arabic. The same holds for English-Spanish speakers and for French-Arabic speakers. And so as the authors of one of these studies conclude, the effects of language elicited preference are large, providing evidence that preferences, this this is really important, preferences are not merely transmitted through language, but also shaped by it. So the language we speak affects who we are and what we want. Scripture itself hints at this. In recent years, scholars have begun to show how many allusions to earlier passages in Scripture are found in later passages. That's what's known as intratextuality. Greg Beale is particularly good at spotting these allusions. Our Lord's sayings are full of them. He, even more than Augustine, learned to think his father's thoughts after him by, no doubt, soaking himself in God's words in Scripture. And the more we soak ourselves in scripture, learning to experience life as scripture portrays it, the more likely it is that we will come to have, as Paul urges us in Philippians, the same mindset
1: as our Lord Jesus Christ. I I think I know what you mean. Um, I've been following the work of Peter Williams at Tyndale House in Cambridge pretty closely, and he's been pulling apart the parables recently uh, the parables of Jesus, that is, to reveal layer upon layer of Old Testament allusions. I think that's the best way to put it. And I recently came across research that reveals that the style of font, you know, the print on, on paper, the style of font used actually influences what we believe. Um, example, they, they showed that information, the same information that's printed in Times New Roman, Will be found more convincing to the same audience than if it's printed in Arial. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so I, I can see how some, if something as basic as font can influence us, it makes perfect sense to me that language would have an even more powerful impact on us. So, in fact, you know, this reminds me of a story. When I was still in the Marine Corps and I was considering seminary, I was blessed to have a conversation with a, a prominent New Testament scholar uh, as he was kind of helping me ponder my way through the decision. And he explained to me that reading the New Testament in the original Greek is like reading it in color. And that just awoken in me a desire to learn more. That's that's a great way to put it. Reading the New Testament
2: in the original Greek is like reading it in color. I'd want to add, however, that when I talk about making scripture our primary language, I don't mean that we all must learn Hebrew and Greek. Oh, right, sure. Certainly, more of us who are called to teach and preach God's Word need to master the biblical languages, since, in fact, it doesn't take much facility at all in another language to realize that languages have interpretive possibilities and nuances that just can't be captured in translation. Commentators can, of of course, help us captured those subtleties, but actually being able to read the languages is much better. Right. Yet, yet the Holy Spirit accompanies our reading of Scripture and helps us to capture its unique perspective, even when we're reading just in English. So, careful, regular, thorough, comprehensive, and even deliberately intratextual reading of Scripture like the searching of the scriptures that the Bereans are committed for in Acts seventeen, that instills in us the mind of Christ.
1: Yeah, that that's helpful, and I, I certainly didn't mean to imply that we should all become uh, Greek and Hebrew scholars. Um, <laughs> Lord knows, I struggle with that myself. Um, okay, so before we move on, here's a question: Do you think that we could just take a moment and tie this more directly into suffering? Uh, because this is kind of good at a conceptual level, but we're talking about suffering here. So how does this relate into suffering? Sure, sure. In our last
2: episode, I was trying to convey that very sort of connection when I explained that when Psalm 90 declares that because of sin, God returns us to the dust, Mm -hmm. saying, return, O children of Adam, that there Psalm 90 is echoing, it's alluding to, it's commenting on Genesis 3.19, where God declared, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. If we make that connection between Psalm 90 and verse 19 of chapter three of Genesis, if we make that connection, then as we saw in our last session, C.S. Lewis to acknowledge, We won't say that God hasn't warned us not to reckon on worldly happiness. In fact, as Lewis reminded us and reminded himself, we have even been promised sufferings as, as he put it, part of the program.
1: I see what Lewis is saying there. And the thing, Mark, is it seems like it should be more obvious to us. But since most of us aren't as fluent in the language of scripture as we should be, and and I'm indicting myself here as much as anyone else, I think we tend to miss these kinds of connections and illusions and, and foreshadowings. But even then, we're without we're without excuse because Genesis chapter three, especially verses 15 to 19, it's unambiguously clear that suffering's indeed part of the program. So I, I think I'm seeing how this relates to my observation in the last episode that while some suffering's punishment Scripture clarifies that much of it's the result of the fall as such, I don't think we can interpret suffering through the grid or language of karma as I alluded to last time and as Westerman said, we know there's a, a necessary connection between guilt and punishment but and tell me if I'm wrong, but this doesn't mean that every bit of our suffering is punishment for something we've done wrong in the past I don't think we can draw that direct of a line no that's 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 right KJ.
2: I said that I'd respond to your concern about our mm-hmm. taking a karma-like stance to our suffering by exploring this time what Ecclesiastes says to about suffering, what it adds to what we saw with Psalm 90. For the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he claims that both uh, he, he claims a couple of things. He claims both that he has seen righteous people get what the wicked deserve and wicked people, get what the righteous deserve, and also that time and chance, as he puts it, happen to us all. In fact, some commentators claim that the whole book of Ecclesiastes is just an extended commentary on Genesis three sixteen through 19. Hmm. For instance, David Clemens writes that the relationship between Ecclesiastes and the first few chapters of Genesis, and now I'm quoting him, is best understood as an arresting, but thoroughly orthodox exposition of Genesis 1 through 3. In both texts, he says, the painful consequences of the fall are central. But of course, if that's so, then unlike Psalm 90, the emphasis in Ecclesiastes is not so much on God's active anger against human sin, it's more on the way All of creation has suffered damage because of sin. I can't right now spell all of this out in detail. Um, More of the details are spelled out and give me understanding that I may live. But the general picture goes like this. When God created the world, he created it, as Isaiah tells us, to be inhabited. That means that he created it as a stable reliable, rationally explorable place. He did that, as the first chapter of Genesis makes clear, by separating the light from the darkness, the land from the seas, and then speaking words that caused the various kinds of plants and animals to reproduce after their own kinds. The creation mandate for Adam and Eve the creation mandate of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth that reiterates that God created a world that we human beings could be at home in. One where that we could increasingly over time occupy, explore, and understand and over which we could rule as God's visible images, treating it as he himself would want it to be treated.
1: Hmm. Well, I'm intrigued by this idea of Ecclesiastes as commentary on Genesis. I'm I'm thinking these are the sorts of things that just emerge the more we become fluent in the language of scripture, uh, and they just stand out more to us. So maybe you could say a bit more about that. Sure. What it comes to is that the world, then,
2: as God created it, had what C.S. Lewis identifies as M.F., which is the Hebrew word for something having the character of being trustworthy and reliable, of being something that people can base their lives on. Belief in creation, Lewis wrote in Reflections on the Psalms, involves seeing nature. Not as a mere datum, but as an achievement. Seeing nature not as a mere datum, but as an achievement. And then he goes on the psalmists are delighted with its mere solidity and permanence. God has given to his works his own character of a the meth. They are watertight, faithful, reliable, not at all vague. Or phantasmal. Lewis then quotes the Anglican Book of Common Prayer on Psalm 33, verses 4 and 9. It goes like this All his works are faithful. He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood firm. And then he paraphrases the claims that are found in Psalm 104, verse 5. Here's his paraphrase. God has laid the foundations of the earth with perfect thoroughness. And of Psalm 148, verse 6, He has made everything firm and permanent and imposed boundaries which limit each thing's operation. All of those passages are a kind of intratextual commentary on why God made the separations and divisions that he did in Genesis 1 and thus those passages make it clear how
1: he created the world to be an inhabitable place. That's good, Mark. I, I love Reflections on the Psalms. And I never made those connections of intertextual commentary before. And it, it kind of brings me to brings to mind one of my favorite lines from Reflections on the Psalm that I think I think it succinctly captures the beauty of what you're calling the biblical language uh, when Lewis states that. It helps him express, quote, the same delight in God, which made David dance. And that's always something that has sort of (laughs) brought a joy to my heart. And the way you're describing this just kind of leads me to that line from the same book. That's just a wonderful line that the
2: Psalms help him express the same delight in God, which made David dance.
1: That's biblical language right there.
2: <laughs> Yet in spite of the stability and reliability that God initially built into the world we learned in an earlier episode that God actually increased the amount of suffering in the world in response to Adam and Eve's sin this included according to Genesis 3:19 his cursing the ground that is it included his disrupting the trustworthiness and reliability of the causal regularities he had created that made our world a humanly predictable and thus inhabitable place. Of course, the first cataclysmic consequence of Adam and Eve's disobedience comes in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain murders his brother Abel. In Hebrew, the word Abel is Hevel or Hebel. And the Hebrew word for vanity is also Hevel or Hebel. So when Ecclesiastes opens with the words, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, we are to remember that whatever goes wrong in our world is ultimately due to human sin. Human lives in particular, no matter how long or how great their achievements are, like Psalm 144 puts it, like a breath, literally like Hevel, hmm. like 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 Hebel, like Abel, who only enters the biblical narrative to die. Oh,
1: wow! Well, I've been trying to read through the Bible in, in ninety days, and I I just finished Ecclesiastes. So this really adds to borrow what I said before. Adds new color to those passages. Um, You mentioned that this can be a a commentary on Genesis 3. How would this differ from Psalm 90 as a commentary on that same passage? Psalm 90 and Ecclesiastes
2: differ in that while the lament of Psalm 90 seems tied to some particular trial that Israel went through, Ecclesiastes considers what happens to everyone who lives, as the author of Ecclesiastes puts it, Under the sun. Death's inevitability and apparent finality show life's futility to be universal. From an under the sun perspective, which is the perspective of the author of Ecclesiastes from the second verse of chapter one through the 12th verse of chapter eight, from an under the sun exclusively secular standpoint, everything human appears as evanescent, a mere nothingness. Now, from that pessimistic standpoint, which is the standpoint that the preacher takes from 1, 1-2 2 through twelve eight, from that pessimistic standpoint, wisdom is ultimately no better than foolishness, righteousness is no better than wickedness, or love than hate, because death swallows them all. Even at its best, as my colleague Dan Trier has written, wisdom is cannot outrun death under the sun that is in terms of the now somewhat humanly opaque causal processes that shape our fortunes the preacher observes that quote the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise nor riches to the intelligent nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, if that seems to deny God's providence, it's helpful to know that Calvin, who is undoubtedly among the strongest supporters of the position that nothing falls outside God's providential ordering of all things, Calvin wrote that, and I'm quoting him now, All events are governed by God's secret plan, yet because the sluggishness of our mind lies far beneath the height of God's providence, however all things may be ordained by God's plan, for us they are fortuitous. For us they are fortuitous. They appear as if they are nothing other than chance. So he goes on. On their face, they bear no other appearance than being mere chance, whether they're considered in their own nature or weighed
1: according to our knowledge and judgment. Wow. Um, well, we've, we've been looking pretty exclusively the Old Testament. Uh, are any of these allusions in the New Testament? There are. When Ecclesiastes
2: was translated into Greek, the Hebrew word hebel was rendered by the Greek word metaiatates, meaning that Genesis 3 and Ecclesiastes would eventually echo in the New Testament. Commenting on the phrase, for the creation was subjected to futility at Romans 8.20, where we find Paul saying that the whole creation is groaning for redemption. Commenting on that phrase, for the creation was subjected to futility, John Stott writes this. This reference to the past must surely be to the judgment of God which fell on the natural order following Adam's disobedience. The ground was cursed because of him so that Adam and his descendants would extract food from it only by painful toil until death claimed them and they returned to the dust from which they had been taken. Paul sums up the result of God's curse by the word mataiatates, which means emptiness, whether of purpose or of result. It's the word, Stott says, chosen by the Greek translators of the Old Testament for vanity of vanities all is vanity. Mm. God's warning in Genesis 2.17 that if Adam ate from the forbidden tree then dying, he would die, included all of the debilitating processes that end in death, including all of our experiences of perplexity, of frustration, of pain, sickness, aging, loneliness, discord, strife, and alienation. Christians, of course, we Christians, need to remember this. For otherwise, it seems to me, we may assume either that we won't suffer much— or as you observed last week, KJ, we may, in fact, think that all of our suffering is karma-like and thus is direct retribution for a particular sense.
1: Yeah. Well, I think I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I think I'm beginning to see just <laughs> how important it is to be fluent in Scripture. You've tied up so many uh, loose ends for me here. I, I think one of the problems is that we... We're too quick to cherry pick easy to understand passages and avoid passages like this that are a little tougher, require a little more chewing, a little more meditation and more study. And it it seems like that's what what, at least one of the things that contributes to shallow theology. And I would would say that this is probably especially acute when it comes to the question of suffering, because it seems like that's where the rubber meets the road.
2: I, I think that's exactly right. We need to remember that we may even suffer profoundly. Yeah. And if we do, it probably is going to perplex us and prompt us to ask, why? Why am I suffering? Mm-hmm. Why has this happened to me? Yeah. Sometimes the answers to questions like those are clear. Adam and Eve knew why she was going to find labor painful and he would find providing food for his family laborious. Cain knew why God had condemned him to be a vagabond who would no longer know God's presence. Likewise, the Israelites of Psalm 90 knew that their suffering was caused by their sin, even if some of the particular ways in which they were suffering may have startled and even dismayed them. Hmm. But, But often we don't know. We can't say why we suffer as we do. Since the fall, God has subjected the creation to futility, which means that while its structures and processes are still somewhat discoverable by us, and while we are still able to rule over the rest of creation to some degree, yet now those structures and processes convey not only health and psychological wholeness and life, but also sickness and psychological brokenness and death. Medical science helps us track some of creation's processes. So we can now give a bit of an answer to the question, why did Dabney suffer so much? And why do some of us suffer so little? Diphtheria, which you'll remember is what killed his three sons. Diphtheria is caused by a bacterium that can be controlled by a vaccine. We won't suffer like Dabney if we have gotten that vaccine. Yet many of creation's processes remain opaque to us. We may suffer differently than Dabney since we've gained a bit more control over some of the world's causal processes, yet we may still suffer as profoundly even if not in exactly the same way, right? right. Since God is providentially control in control of all things, we should, indeed, we're commanded to pray that He will deliver us from evil, including profound suffering. Yet, under the sun, we can't know to what degree He will spare us from bad things.
1: No, we can't, and that—that's really hard, Mark. I mean, I, we live in an age of sort of scientism and I think we tend to think of everything as these closed loop systems where we can answer every question, but we fool ourselves because that's not even true in medicine. Right. So well, you've given us, this is probably a good time to stop. You've given us a lot of things to ponder till we talk next time, Mark. So thanks for, for giving us this to chew on and I look forward to spending more time with you next time. I might say
2: one more thing. Next time, we finally get to turn to the gospel and so we get to hear the good news that answers all the distress that we've been stressing.
0: In this episode, Mark suggests that Scripture should become our primary language because the language we speak influences our beliefs, desires, and feelings. The more we soak ourselves in Scripture, The more likely we are to have the same mindset as our Savior, Jesus Christ. Then, looking closely at Ecclesiastes, we see how it offers commentary on Genesis 3. When suffering prompts us to ask questions about why certain things happen to us, sometimes we can get answers to our questions, but often we cannot. This can be difficult to understand, but we must remember that God as our Father is in control over all things. So while we should pray that he will deliver us from evil, including profound suffering, yet we can't know to what degree he will or won't spare us from bad things. All we can know is that he will never leave us or forsake us, no matter how great our suffering may be. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Carl Johnson. If you found this content helpful, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review will help others find these discussions as well, and if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at info at whenthestarsdisappear.com. We'll answer listeners' questions as soon as we have enough of them to make up an episode, and we'd love to answer one from you. This is Lawrence Usanto on behalf of Mark and KJ thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear.